Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Monday, May 24. Just ahead, Virgin Galactic blasts off. Will that extend its runway? And a look at how DraftKings leverages content to know exactly what their customers are doing online. And Naked and Afraid meets Godzilla. Sex in the City meets the Property Brothers. Our guest says the new Warner Brothers-fueled Discovery could make for an interesting big company. We'll drill down on Discovery. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, Tune in, but hit that subscribe button. Follow us. Make sure you download and catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down, where we explain the business stories behind Stocks and a Move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, what are the three most important developments in the world of business today? Corey, let's get to it. The three most important business stories of the day, Monday, are number one, something that's been whispered around LA for at least a year now where I live, the Wall Street Journal reporting that Amazon is nearing a deal to purchase MGM, the price tag $9 billion. A huge deal, content back in style. We're going to dig into this idea a lot when we talk about discovery later in the show, but uh, Obviously, content and the studios that make content really hot right now. Yeah, and what a great day to have Cole me talking about discovery. Perfect, perfect news cycle for us. Number two story, cryptocurrencies, of course. Atlanta Federal Reserve President Rafael Bostic saying Monday, cryptocurrency and digital finance is a, quote, area we cannot ignore. And, quote, the crypto space is an extremely volatile market. And I don't think its characteristics right now are conclusive, conducive for them to be a currency. Bostic was speaking in an online discussion with a Florida-based real estate institute. At the same time, China's powerful super regulator pledged a crackdown on Bitcoin mining and trading. And over the weekend, the price of Bitcoin fell briefly to around $31,000. That's more than 50% lower from its high last month. It has recovered somewhat. A little reminder, three big corporate investors in Bitcoin are Tesla, MicroStrategy, and Square. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, this notion of what regulators want to regulate, I mean, the notion that volatility doesn't make a currency viable for a currency market. Well, it doesn't make a currency viable if you want to replace the U.S. dollar. But volatility in currencies is is, is just a, a thing. And that's why we have Yeah, FX that's just markets. the way it goes. Exactly. And there point. are lots of volatile <laughs> currencies that are just as volatile. I haven't read that anyone brought up that point to Bostic in that online forum today. 
Now, the third story, the third most important business story of the day, Peloton, planning to build its first U.S. factory. The facility will be located in Ohio and create around 2,000 jobs. Production is expected to start in 2023. Now, Peloton currently produces most of its treadmills and indoor exercise bikes at third-party facilities in Taiwan, and demand more than doubled for Peloton's at-home exercise products during the pandemic. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, you mentioned MGM. MGM Motion Pictures in the news, but NGM, biopharmaceuticals, is more of my focus today. Ah, NGM. Shares at NGM fell 40% today. What's going on at NGM? Okay, well, it's a biotech company. Obviously, it's called NGM Biopharmaceuticals. Um, There is a disease known as NASH, or non-alcoholic stethohepatitis. Uh, It's a pernicious disease that damages the liver. Uh, NASH occurs when fat builds up in the liver. It leads to inflammation, hepatitis, and scarring, uh, which we know as cirrhosis, right? Um, So the real problem is when NASH starts to develop fibers or fibrosis in the liver, and it becomes uh, life-threatening, not just cirrhosis, but all the way to liver cancer. Uh, And of course, your body can't regenerate your liver or heal it, and there's no cure for NASH. Uh, NGM Biopharma thought they had a cure. Uh, It's called aldefermin. And it has sailed through some early studies and looked so promising that the company was able to sell another $100 million in stock in January to fund further development for uh, NGM. Do a lot of people suffer from this disease? Well, more and more. Somewhere between 1.5 and 6.5% of all people have some form of this, according to one study that I read. And now it's also showing up a lot of children, especially Hispanic boys. Obesity is the main driver of the disease. And of course, as you know, obesity in the world has tripled since 1975 but uh, and, and shows no sign of, of slowing. But uh, a phase 2B trial of this NGM biopharma, uh, Aldif, what do they call it, aldiferamin, uh, this phase mm-hmm. 2B trial, well, it just flat out missed its primary endpoint. So the company is just walking away and it's going to focus on some other drugs that they have developments in. Uh, which you don't always see from biotech companies. They try to find some way to twist the results and keep things alive. These guys are just walking away from this. Here's Dr. David Woodhouse, CEO. Yeah, I mean, as you know, we've we've held a high bar of efficacy for this program since its inception. Um, it's a once-daily subcutaneous injection, and it um, requires a statin, a concomitant statin. Um, and so we've really looked for that fibrosis endpoint, which, by the way, is the endpoint that's correlated with outcomes in this disease. And from a resource allocation point of view within NGM, we have a lot of other programs that have high potential as well. And so, you know, I think perhaps if this was our only asset, we might be really looking sideways at this data and seeing what we can see. But from just a prudent resource allocation point of view, um, it seemed like actually a relatively uh, easy decision, not one we were hoping to have to make, but um, the data is what the data is, and we're going to follow it. So pretty bad news uh, for all those people suffering from this. There was a lot of hope around this drug. Their early studies looked really good. I'm sure you know, ultimately people are going to start to wonder about all of their earlier studies if the results looked so good in phase one and phase two A, that phase two B was an utter and abject failure. Corey, how long were they um, working on this drug and this treatment? You know, I, I actually don't know the answer to that. I, it's been many, many, many years. Um, years. And the study yeah. years and, and, and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, put right. into this. And, you know, biotech investing, when you're betting on a drug like this, uh, is binary in a lot of ways. But I think that the early right. results looked so good. And there was so much hope for this because this is an uncurable disease. Uh, it's a shame that it didn't work out. 
Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at DraftKings. DraftKings, DKNG, the shares rose 8% Monday. They've risen 44% in a year. What's new with DraftKings? Well, there's a report in the website, The Information, that DraftKings had mm-hmm. approached AT&T's Warner Media about acquiring the Bleacher Report in the okay. early part of last year, so a good year ago. But that matters a lot right now because they say that the Discovery-backed Group 9 Media also looked at the sports media property, and it's even more intriguing because maybe now Discovery, having acquired uh, the assets of Warner Media or trying to do that in a spinoff uh, of those assets with AT&T, um, that they might – if the merger goes through, and it looks like it probably will, they're going to need to shed some assets or might want to sort of find a little cash on the table and in the couch cushions. And Bleacher Report uh, to DraftKings might be just that. So why would a gambling company want a content company like Bleacher Report? Well, I think it, it tells you a lot about how DraftKings sees itself. They really see themselves as a data company where they mine customer behavior, they identify how much a customer has in their wallet, and they target them at the exact moment they think that person is going to place a bet. So DraftKings already makes content, but they use content to do this monitoring of their users and potential users, and they put an enormous amount of technology and CRM software and marketing behind these efforts to mine this data. In fact, they call content one of their four Cs, Uh, I went back to the last analyst meeting for DraftKings a few weeks ago, and here's what CEO Jason Robbins had to say about using content to target potential gamblers. Our marketing platform understands all this data, both internal and with our CRM tools. We'll be able to present offers, maybe like a deposit bonus because this person has a lower balance, or a McGregor win bonus on Facebook because we know that this person likes UFC. All of this is highly automated and happens every single day across millions of different permutations and segments. Millions. It's this platform that we think makes for a seamless user experience that will ultimately be very important in differentiating us and winning in this industry. One of the areas that we've had substantial success in also is going back to the four C's is creating our own content as well as creating a great consumer experience is integrating our gaming product into our sportsbook platform as well as a new standalone app that we created. So creating their own apps, creating their own content, and now we learn, according to the information, looking at buying a lot of sports users' content to know exactly what tweaks someone to make them possibly ready to place a bet. That tech is amazing and frightening. Creepy. Yes, it is. Creepy. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Virgin Galactic. You saw what happened to that stock today. It was amazing. It's, it's, it, it is rare that a stock or a stock ticker predicts what's going to happen to the stock itself. <laughs> but SPCE, space, that's what the stock did today. Yeah, shares saw an almost 30% rally today, and they've gained 67% in a year. But today, 30% rise. Wow. Yeah, and the volume was off the charts today as well. Um, it was a big day for Virgin Galactic, and it started, well, the big day really was Saturday. It started uh, like this. Three. Two, one, release, release, release. Fire, fire. And there you had it, uh, where the spaceship dropped off of the space plane carrying it, uh, getting ultimately to a speed of Mach 3, three times the speed of sound, of course. Uh, then what happens is the spaceship sort of drops off uh, the bottom of the, the spaceship that's carrying it, the plane that's carrying it, and goes straight up into space, 56 miles away from the Earth, 
before it starts to drop into gravity. The sound from these astronauts when they first got to that point. Again. Again, it's the third time the Virgin Galactic has wow. gotten that far. Uh, and it was pretty amazing and pretty amazing for uh, the astronauts aboard this. You'll hear these guys. Um, pitch. Wow, look at that view. Gorgeous. Look, and they get the great weightlessness up there. Pitch frame is set. Yeah, a decrease in pitch. That was a great burn. Southeast Southern fully deployed, point Charlie complete. And they're they're just they're just amazed at what they're seeing out the windows so of this cool. thing. Yep. They can look down to the earth and see all the. There's the Sea of uh, Cortez over there. Uh, the Baja. I can see the Baja Peninsula, Dave. There's Apogee. Silence of space. Yeah. Silence not good for podcasts, really. Silence. Amazing colors. No. Not helping. But you can feel the excitement. You can feel it. Yeah, uh, the YouTube video of this thing is just super cool. And as I got back down, you know, this thing lands like a plane. So when it re-enters, they they start to go back to uh, their uh, the crowd that was gathered in New Mexico at what they call their Virgin Galactic spaceport. Um, it's a really wild-looking vehicle, chrome like those old those old Pan Am planes from the 1930s, uh, just shiny and really cool-looking. Um, uh, you can hear uh, Michael Koglazer, the Virgin CEO, um, just pumped up. And uh, Richard Branson himself, of course, was there on the tarmac as well. Now, the flight didn't contain any passengers, uh, but it did produce some revenue. The company didn't say how much, but it did say that there was an unspecified NASA research experiment, as well as collecting data to be used in its final two FAA verification reports, which are required to issue what the FAA calls a commercial reusable spacecraft operator's license. Yeah, that's a thing. But the short of it is that Virgin is, is one step, an important step closer to offering spaceflight, which a lot of skeptics, including our, our friend James Raste, we talked to, what, two weeks ago, wasn't mm-hmm. sure they get there. He wasn't sure, and he isn't sure how many more times they can pull this off safely. But it's worth noting that the company has $617 million in cash at the end of the last quarter and uh, virtually no debt. And they burned through $50 million the prior quarter. They're expected to burn through, and they've said they'll burn through about $60 million every quarter, uh, at least for the next year. At that rate, they'd have about 10 more quarters before they totally run out of cash. But presumably, they'll have some more income coming in then, whether it's enough to keep this going, uh, we shall see. But um, you can see why people get so excited about the possibility. Uh, the numbers may or may not pencil out, but this thing is undeniably super cool. Very exciting. All right, our guest Cole Smead coming up in a little bit from Smead Capital. We're going to drill down into the new giant company of discovery. The drill down is brought to you by Era. Era's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. Link up with the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. 
All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. Our guest, Cole Smead, the president of Smead Capital. Uh, Cole uh, is one of my favorite stock pickers, really does some homework on his names and knows these businesses. Cole, uh, talk to me about why you've decided we should look at Discovery. Yeah, it's a great name. Uh, and just give you a little background for it. We've been involved with the name uh, a little more than three years. Uh, they did their deal with Scripps back in late 17. And we actually were involved with Scripps prior to that deal. And so we've been very much in bed with the kind of Malone-esque uh, discovery entity with David Zaslav Helm. And it, the game only gets more interesting, uh, as we've seen here recently with the deal announced last week. Well, talk to me about this. The, so the, the deal, obviously, uh, for those of you who've been under a rock, is uh, AT&T bailing from its, uh, what was it, $44 billion acquisition of Warner Media's assets, most uh, prominently HBO uh, and maybe CNN, throw that in too, uh, and turning that over into a combined entity that Discovery will run, but AT&T will maintain some ownership in. Yeah, so to your point, uh, there was a great Malone interview uh, on Friday that's been uh, put back out online in certain parts by CNBC, as well as um, both Zaslav and Stanky were interviewed the day of the deal. And I think what's most interesting is this was really a takeover of discovery by AT&T to start out with. So 71% of the new ownership base will be AT&T. And if you remember, the Time Warner assets were purchased for about $85 billion. And they've divested some of those assets. At the same time, they're getting $43 billion in cash out of this deal at the end of the day. So some people said AT&T is getting a really, they're kind of you know selling at a loss. And I, I wouldn't characterize it as that. Um, I would consider this an AT&T takeover discovery with the leadership of discovery, both you know the board um, as represented by more discovery members, including with the Newhouse family, a large equity owner in this new entity uh, will represent, but also the Malone Sasa part. And I think the other thing that's very critical to understand is where we've come from in media to where we are. Um, look at the average media company. They've done terrible the last 10 plus years. And there's been a lot of uh, critique of David Zaslav from uh, Discovery's creations uh, back in 07 to today. But if you look at Discovery, it went from nothing to something. And if you look at the stock price return, though it hasn't been a great return relative to the market, um, relative to the space, it's killed it. So you, you kind of made effectively a little worse than market returns in Discovery since they went public. Um, and they're really on a platform that I don't think the world's really ready for, particularly domestic, but that's not where the great growth is in, in this market. It's international. And we'd love to talk about that more if you guys were interested. Yeah, hundred percent. I want to get to that. And so I actually agree with you, uh, in reviewing the deal that while, you know, this is how maybe how we look at the world as opposed to how the world looks at the world. So if Discovery is going to run the assets, I think it's seen as a, a Discovery takeover. But the financial um, ownership of the company really will be concentrated at AT&T just with the Discovery ownership. And I would also argue that Discovery's management, I think you're making the same argument, is probably better at running a media company than the guys that they had at AT&T. Um, so what do you like about what they've built with HGTV with Animal Planet, with the the media properties that Discovery has uh, there. Besides, of course, the much loved and highly groomed Property Brothers. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So Barry Diller was interviewed on this uh, last Friday. He was opening his little island um, there in New York, and uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, you know, asked some questions on this. And and by the way, Barry Diller's been around this business for literally decades, and. Has had a no dope. No dope that Barry Diller. Yeah, uh, he's been in everything. I mean, everything from the Paramount 
to the I, you know, knowing that Iger's going to come to the helm or Eisner's going to leave. I mean, Barry Diller's very much in the know of this industry. And I found it really interesting that Diller, he, he, he zigged when everyone else is zagging. What I mean by that is Barry Diller commented that he felt that David Saslap um, was an ex, or he, said, he called him a scrappy CEO. And when he said scrappy, he said, you know, they've gone from being a business that uh, in effect was a nobody to a somebody. Okay. And he didn't say that that guarantees them success. But in comparison, not to name names, but there are some tech writers out there that it's pretty easy to make the case that they called David Saslav slick. And I really think the management component of this is the most interesting um, because I think Saslav, coming from a much bigger media background, he hasn't ran a movie a movie studio business, but he has been at NBC Universal for years. And by the way, him and, and Zucker, who is coming into this from the CNN side, so has he. So I think it's pretty interesting that they're underestimating the management of this company. And at the same time, they don't understand what scale. I mean, if you just combine the existing uh, content spend of these two businesses, it's 20% higher than Netflix. Okay. And a lot of this will become down to who, who can dominate content spending because the content is creative. There's no algorithm to it. And interestingly, in John Malone's comments, he said, well, historically speaking, bigger businesses aren't necessarily the most creative ones. And isn't it funny, Corey? We sit at a juncture where people think the biggest tech companies in the world are the most creative, particularly in content. Well, let's talk about that, though, because, I mean, to the, that point, I mean, there is a reason that HBO is great and, and FX and Showtime and uh, others who could have been great aren't. And I think a lot of that credit ought to go to a guy who's not even there anymore, Richard Plepler, who really put together the programming slate that gave us Sopranos and it gave us Curb Your Enthusiasm and it gave us Sex in the City and it gave us Game of Thrones. And it made HBO a dominant force because they had the best programming. But easy come, easy go. Without the hits, this doesn't work. So this is, you know, the reason that Marvel is great and DC isn't is because Marvel had better content. Now that's to the benefit of DC or of, of Disney, I should say. So how can these guys get the HBO mojo back and actually have the value of new titles because the old titles are getting old? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I mean, if this is Netflix, let's say we're the board of Netflix. Okay. Our strategy is we throw enough spaghetti off the wall, something eventually will stick. Okay. And that's really the history of content, I would argue. It's you throw it off the wall, you see it'll stick. I mean, for example, to your point, Corey, no one knew that 90 Day Fiance was going to be the success that it was. And it's the, such a primetime blockbuster success. It has young women totally glued to the show. No one would have thought. Um, it reminds me of Storage Wars, what was years ago now. But those kind of things, that's all coming out of very low-cost content. And so I think what we've done is we kind of turned the script. It used to be the bigger the budget, the bigger the hit. And we're finding out that it's not really coming down to that. In fact, I think that's why you see Netflix tap towards reality television. Um, and, and because they recognize that they need fewer hours. Um, and that's really what decides hits. But hasn't Discovery acquired a high-cost producer, not a low? Discovery, which has had great success at making lots of cheap garbage and some of it sticks, 
that maybe that was pejorative, but I'll I'll, I'll stay with it. Uh, so they make they make a star out of Pawn Stars or out of out of the storage shows or out of Property Brothers, whatever. All cheap shows to yeah. do. Yeah. Now they're buying one of the most historically one of the biggest freest spenders in the history of Hollywood, where the where Godzilla versus Kong uh, Kong better work because it's going to have hundreds of millions of dollars into it. That's the model at HBO. Well, and that's I'd see the model that they're going to. And so, Warner, right. so they, they launched Discovery Plus. So far, it's you know people chalk it up to a success on Discovery's part. But to your point, they're really only covering certain content area. It's a lifestyle brand, is what Discovery was, right? The lifestyle of food and your house, and oh, maybe you go find a foreign spouse, or you're looking for a spouse, and so you kind of watch this crazy show about you know a foreign spouse, right? That's a lifestyle thing. Where they're going is not lifestyle brands. Where they're going is they're going to be the bundle. Okay. Um, and Malone talked about this in his interview. He pointed out that where they're going with news and sports will be somewhere where other people can't compete. Now, they already have this. If you go to the European brands um, that Discovery is now producing, they have Eurosport. They are providing um, you know, the Olympics uh, in these other markets. They're doing the golf uh, uh, PGA coverage in those other markets. So I think the CNN will cover news. I think the HBO will cover kind of your high production, but big movie drama. Um, and, and with the movie studio of the Time Warner assets on the back of it, I think that's the toughest thing to figure out is the movie studio. Because like I said, the, the history of these people is very good in um, the leadership and sass in the TV business. The movie is, is a wild card. And I agree with you there. But if you go abroad into markets like Germany, where you can take this content, they already have existing relationships with Proceedin and other people in their joint um, joint venture already as discovery. I think this gets terribly interesting. I think about this in the markets that Netflix is, they have to create all this from scratch and hope that what they do in these markets will have some leverage, but they might get single language leverage versus discovery already has a lot of this content in these direct markets. Therefore, they're just looking and saying, hey, how can we add the Time Warner assets into these verticals that we already have in Germany and other parts of Europe? And I, I think that's where streaming is going to grow the most. In the, in the United States, it's a GDP plus game. You're going to slowly grow, but it's a slow growth business. It's kind of like cable used to be. And the, the non-US market, I think, could be incredible. This could end up being a 50-50 US, non-US profitability game. And that, that's look where Netflix wants to grow. It, it would be a big impetus to that. You mentioned you've been on this uh, company for a long time, and Discovery uh, was making a real big point of their success in streaming and their absolute focus in streaming and growth up until this. Even in the days before this, you had the CEO of Discovery yeah. talking about yeah. their their abs their, their uh, laser focus. Because why would you focus any other way, right? So yeah. laser focus was the the cliche that he went to about streaming. Uh, they had a, a not insignificant Discovery Plus streaming business. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And. And, and Malone put it on terms of, okay, there's Netflix, there's Disney Plus, which, I mean, everybody talks about Disney Plus. ESPN Plus is an add-on to that. So is Hulu. Those are all really packaged as a combo, ultimately, I would argue. And so that's kind of the competition to the Netflix. That's the competition to the Time Warner Plus Discovery assets. But what no one's saying is when you combine these entities together, your platform costs go way down. It's a scale game, like anything else is. So the platform costs, call it the the, um, the over-the-top synergies get really big as you throw all these down because you're not going to be building out three platforms like you were before. You now scale one and you just change the picture on the front of it. You change the sign up and you, you get in incredible economics um, tied to that. So I think that's what they're under undermining is the idea that they can't drive a lot better economics. Now, one other thing I'll add, 
advertising. Advertising will still be present in this model. And the interesting part will be, can they drive higher advertising pricings through say like an ad light model on their own platform versus as Aslav also was talking about in the days prior to the deal being announced, Discovery is under earning on advertising tied to their affiliate fees from, from the cable companies and the, and the uh, satellite uh, distributors. Yeah, so back that up for me because I, I was looking at the results and looking at how they're advertising in the first quarter. is actually down on a year-over-year basis off the previous year, yeah. um, which has not been the case for other company, other media companies. And I wonder, yeah. you know, what is going on with their advertising and why is it so much? I mean, you would think – with all of the things going on in the world of home improvement and the huge spending we've seen at companies like, totally. like Home Depot and Lowe's, lumber prices going through the roof, that that would immediately transfer to a lot of people wanting to advertise on all these dumb home improvement shows that seem to uh, entertain everyone in my family for totally. hour upon hour upon hour. But that is not the case. It doesn't show up in Discovery's results. What are they doing wrong? Well, totally. So um, two things I would say. One is... There's a leg. There's always a leg effect to this because you got to remember the economy is still recovering. To your point, um, if you go watch HGTV, you'll see companies, you'll see Home Depot, you'll see Lowe's, you know, the people that are direct to the products. But you have to remember that TV doesn't provide you who the end user is like the internet does. Okay. So when you go to your own model and your own over the top distribution, what you do is you know a lot more about the consumer. Therefore, you're able with the advertisers to provide a lot more for them to know who they're connecting with them with, with on a CPM basis. This is exactly what Malone talked about. He said the CPM potential of where they're going. So CPM, with this, just to, just to back up for a listener, CPM is cost per thousand or what advertisers pay to reach a thousand listeners. Correct. Yeah. So in terms of your ability to look and say, okay, the cost per thousand people, it's not just, once again, it's not just saying per random thousand people, your ability to go in and say, okay, Corey, um, I'm a paint company. I know the most likely person to come in and, and redo their paint is going to be a 30 to 50 year old couple living in the suburbs of America. And when Discovery is doing that through Comcast, they don't get that data. But when Discovery is doing that through their own platform, guess what? You have address that they are at presently. Um, your, your IP would tell you that as well. The, the, the internet connection would tell them that as well. So there, there's all this data that comes into play. It, it tells you they're going to get higher rates. And so it's interesting. We could have a, col a collision of advertising rates running into the internet where you have data coming through a streaming app versus the competition for advertising on page views of the internet. And it, so you can kind of see where the Google versus like a discovery type platform could come at odds because they know a lot about each consumer. So your theory there is that Comcast therefore should have higher CPMs because they can see into who the user is of NBC Universal product because Comcast owns that. Well, you run into problems though. Do you think the government is really interested in having Comcast tell NBC Universal what the end user is? And I, I that's tough. By the way, uh, to go back on that, um, Malone was asked about, you know, well, why not? Why wasn't Comcast in on something like this? And he just said the regulatory scrutiny for Comcast is higher because of where they sit with their NBC Universal assets. It doesn't mean that NBC Universal and Time Warner couldn't be put together. The question might be, would that be allowed under the hood of Comcast versus more of an arm's length transaction away from their data and distribution business? And so I think that's the, I think that's the real secret is. So this really does take us back in time to what happens when media companies are owned by non-media owners. Time Warner, I would argue, worked to some degree, but HBO wasn't at the top of its game. Warner Brothers did some good stuff. I would 
as a former Time Incorporated employee, I would say the magazines did a good job. But uh, as ownership of media properties shuttles to non-media owners, they don't just don't seem to get it. When the distributor is in charge of the product, the, the distribution network seems to be the principal focus, not the media product. That ought to be different under Discovery. Well, it should be. But like you're pointing out, Time Warner always changes hands at interesting times, I would argue. Okay. So, you know, we had the big AOL Time Warner transaction 20 years ago, but that was more about AOL. It wasn't necessarily about the content assets and Time Warner, but I think that's the history. These guys are kind of the paradigm shift always in the business. Further, um, don't forget that Coca-Cola bought into Paramount Pictures and was involved, to your point, in a business they had no you know reason to be in. So as Amazon is going out and trying to close a deal with MGM, the movie assets, the James Bond series, if you will, um, I find it really interesting that the market is kind of shrugging at a non-media company owning media assets and not caring. And they're highly scrutinous of the media on media player. That's backwards relative to history. And I think it speaks to what the market's interested in, which is they're not really interested in great content. They're interested in interesting managers that could own content. And, and to your point, I think those are diametrically opposed if you look at the companies buying versus this deal with AT&T and Discovery. Yeah, well, it, I, and I suppose one could argue that Netflix is the exception to that rule where they really have created some really um, uh, popular and even quite often good content. Um, but again, the exception to that rule. Do you guys expect them when you look at Discover? I mean, this is going to be a highly indebted company. And I wonder if you expect them to start to spin off some of these assets. There was a report today which we talked about earlier in the show, that uh, Bleacher Report uh, was an acquisition target by DraftKings and that there are other sort of ancillary um, things at this company that might be interested in being sold, not least of which the studio itself, uh, the Warner Brothers lot uh, in Burbank. Yeah, you know what? I, I mean, that, that movie is a business is the wild part, I think, like I said earlier. So, I, you know, because it's just the least likely to mesh into that overall big package combo. Um, I mean, you can see a merger of Time Warner's uh, movie business with Lionsgate. And that could be another merger. Um, there's already talk of like, you know, Lionsgate with like a CBS Viacom matchup. Um, you know, NBC Universal, like I said, has more regulatory scrutiny because they're data business. But you, you're going to see a lot of names thrown out in this because the whole industry is in play. I'll throw out another idea to you, Corey. Um, both Time Warner as well as Discovery are in play based on this deal. Someone could come in tomorrow and say, I'm stopping the merger, we'll pay the fee, we want to acquire Discovery, or we want to acquire, acquire um, Time Warner assets. Who is that likely to be? Well, it's not going to be uh, Netflix because their whole idea is growth um, organically, but it could be Google, it could be Apple because both of them need content. That's what they're short. And by the way, the market's short content because of the pandemic. So, um, so I, you know, what exact form does this take? I don't know, but to your point about debt, I, John Malone has a lot of equity in this thing. The Newhouse family is taking their preferreds, converting them, taking a small premium on some of those preferreds. And they've been more cautious on the debt structure of discovery over the last few years. Um, I think it's impossible to find a bankruptcy in discovery with those kind of equity owners. Yes. Could the market get scared? Yes, they have before with discovery like they did in late 17 off the Scripps deal. But if there's one thing I know that John Malone gets great terms and he doesn't go bankrupt. Isn't that the truth? All right, uh, Cole Smead, uh, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Cole Smead of Smead Capital. How can people keep track of the latest thoughts out of Smead Capital, Cole? Yeah, yeah. Smeadcap.com or uh, Twitter handles at Smeadcap. You get our missives or I'm sure you can find uh, great stuff like this we're doing with you, Corey. 
Appreciate that, Cole. Thank you very much. That was Cole Smead from Smead Capital. Up next, we're going to talk about the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Hit that subscribe button and follow us to catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back on the drill down with the drill down. Bite that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac, we talked about how many uh, uh, listeners and viewers that they have on Discovery Plus, the Mm -hmm. streaming outlet. You want to guess how many they reported at the end of the last quarter, right before they announced this deal uh, to acquire Warner's assets. How you're asking how many viewers Dis- Discovery, Discovery had? Plus Discovery oh, Plus because it just launched. I'm going to say ten million. Very close, thirteen ah. million. Mm. Um, I think it's just fascinating. What's your What's your go to Discovery show? Uh, I don't have one. <laughs> you're not a 90-day ni- bride guy? I'm not a 90-day bride guy. I um yeah, I I don't we don't actually don't have Discovery Plus yet. There no offense go. to Discovery Plus. Uh I'm sure they'll be fine. All right, thanks for <laughs> listening to the drill down. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Isaac Webster, our executive producer of the drill down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Three.